You know, it can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. Invisible struggles like stress and burnout, caregiving for a loved one, or being misunderstood. But insight, awareness, and empathy will help us better see the issues they're dealing with. And that can make us and our companies healthier, too. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. You know success when you see it. Or you think you do the people in the spotlight. But what about those small business masterminds who succeed at making their money work harder? They do that by having a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, which now earns 5% annual percentage yield. Making your money work as hard as you do? That's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. Now, from our nation's capital, this is Bloomberg Sound On. So one more time, House Republicans, show us your plan. We owe it to the American people to get to the bottom of the greatest theft of American taxpayer dollars in history. This is about the stupidest bill I've ever seen. Just a stupid, stupid, stupid bill. Bloomberg Sound On. Politics, policy, and perspective from D.C.'s top names. We can negotiate on the budget going forward and what we're going to spend. What we can't negotiate on is paying the bills that we have due. Some Democrats are trying to rewrite history and pretend that Republican demands for negotiations are unusual. Bloomberg Sound On with Joe Matthew on Bloomberg Radio. No rate cuts this year, so says the Fed chair. As President Biden and the Speaker of the House stare down over the debt ceiling all today, in Washington, welcome to the fastest hour in politics with two storylines unfolding at once. We're joined by Bloomberg Economics Editor Michael McKee and Terry Haynes of Pangea Policy. And there is another. Nikki Haley set to announce a run for the Republican presidential nomination. We'll have more on that with Bloomberg's Josh Green and from our panel, Bloomberg political contributor and Democratic analyst Jeannie Shanzano is here along with Republican strategist Lisa Camuso-Miller, former communications director for the RNC. Twin storylines coming out of Washington today as President Biden meets with the Speaker of the House. The big sit down with Kevin McCarthy on the debt ceiling. And as you heard from Charlie, the Fed wrapping its two day meeting. Jay Powell telling reporters not planning any rate cuts this year, no matter what the market seems to think. Given our outlook, I, I, I just I don't see us cutting rates this year if we get our if our outlook turns true. As I mentioned just now, if, if we do see inflation coming down much more quickly, that'll that'll play into our policy saying, of course. Fresh from that news conference is Bloomberg Economics Editor Michael McKee. Professor McKee, welcome back. It's good to see you again in Washington. <laughs> nice to be here. Nice to be with uh, Professor Powell. Well, indeed, no rate cuts then this year. Uh, so is the market wrong or is Jay Powell just waiting for the right data to catch up? <laughs> I, I, the Fed has been very uh consistent in saying they aren't going to be cutting rates this year. Their belief is they need to leave rates higher for longer throughout mm-hmm. the year in order to get the job done, which to them is getting inflation down close to 2%. Uh, the market, I think, is looking at, well, we're getting close to a 3% run rate, and that's good enough, and the Fed can then back off. Uh, and Powell made it clear that uh, the Fed doesn't want to back off, but he said inflation has come down faster than we thought. And If that happens, uh, he couldn't rule out a rate cut if if things worked out really well, as the markets expect. But he said, um, that's not our view right now. Markets can uh, change their 
views constantly and the Fed only meets every six weeks, uh, six to eight weeks. So he said, you know, we have a different job. Michael McKee, thank you. By the way, Jay Powell did not comment today when asked about the debt ceiling debate. Surely he would be asked. And it was the main topic on the menu for the big meeting today, only blocks away at the White House. President Biden and Speaker McCarthy, both sides, of course, digging in the past couple of weeks here. The meeting just ended a short time ago. The speaker came out to the reporter stake out in the driveway. You know, the president had a, a good first meeting. Um, I shared my perspective with him. He shared his. And we can we agreed to continue the conversation. Um, we want to make sure we do this in a responsible, reasonable way. And uh, we'll be talking again. Do you think that the odds of the default are growing, shrinking? Where would you place the break? The odds of default. Look, I, I think our first meeting was a good meeting. I don't, I don't want to put it in any false perspectives. We, we both have different perspectives on this, but uh, I thought this was a good meeting. We promised we would continue the conversation. We'll see if we can get there. I think at the end of the day, we can find common ground. I really tip to Josh Wingrove from Bloomberg's White House team there on the driveway with the question on the odds of default. Now, this went on for a couple of minutes. And Kevin McCarthy, who, you know, of course, was talking a big game going into this uh, meeting, and I'm sure will continue to, was sounding pretty optimistic. Looked like he just, you know, came from a, a gratifying session in the Oval Office. And when you read Terry Haynes' note to clients going into this meeting and this, by the way, the Fed meeting and the White House meeting, kind of laid out two options here. The positive consensus from the Fed, I'm guessing we got that, at least nothing big change. They still are pointing to the soft landing. Uh, As Terry writes, Biden and McCarthy choose broadly soothing words while staking out opening negotiating positions. The alternative would be not good. Think 50 basis points if we were talking about that now or an angry Kevin McCarthy at the stakeout. Terry Haynes, of course, founder of Pangea Policy. I guess we had a pretty good day in Washington then, Terry. Hey, good afternoon, Joe. Uh, I think the markets had uh, a better day than they anticipated. And I think on the political side, uh, probably a pretty good day, too. You know, the yeah. uh, without belaboring the excellent coverage on Bloomberg this afternoon, what markets mm-hmm. got was... Firstly, what they sought. Secondly, this acknowledgement of uh, disinflationary might have started to begin, uh, you know, provides some extra happy talk as well as some head scratching about what the message really was. Uh, on the debt ceiling stuff, I mean, from, you know, from McCarthy, you know, McCarthy, I think, has been trying to push uh, the idea that uh, what uh, what they seek, which is a linking of the, the debt ceiling debt limit uh, with some kind of spending restraint, mm-hmm. uh, is a responsible position. A lot of Americans agree with that. So, you know, they had a good first meeting and uh, nobody's shaking in their boots. Wouldn't be uncommon, you know, for the Republican speaker to come out of the White House and trash the meeting or, you know, change his tune. We've seen this before uh, with other speakers and other presidents. Uh, you know, of opposing parties here, Terry, do you get a sense that things actually feel a bit more optimistic? He's talking about a two-year deal, get it done ahead of time, common ground. It doesn't really sound like the Kevin McCarthy who was holding a news briefing in the U.S. House about a week ago. <laughs> well, I think that, uh, I think it's to Speaker McCarthy's, I, you know, I was assuming he's he's reading the uh, 
reading the meeting correctly. I think yeah. it's uh, I think it's uh, very much in Speaker McCarthy's interest to come out and be conciliatory. Uh, leave it up to the White House to uh, continue the uh, no negotiations uh, point, because mm-hmm. everybody else in Washington is saying uh, Democrats and Republicans, of course, there's going to have to be some negotiations uh, uh, in the end. And you know, my own view of this is that what you end up having is you end up having the centrists. Uh, in, in my four-faction uh, world in Washington, you end up having the centrist Democrats and the centrist Republicans trying to put something together, and indeed they already are. So, uh, but that said, this is this is going uh, to go the, to the, the time that is allotted to it. So we're not going to see a final deal on this until summer, I think. Yeah, so you laugh at the two years in, a, in ahead of schedule idea. Um, I think he's. I think he's right tactically to to say that. At the same yeah. time, I uh, I don't think we're any closer to a deal now than we were. Well, you do wonder. You know, is he going to get an earful uh, at least from about twenty of his members when he goes back to the House? What are you doing fooling around with Joe Biden at the White House, Mister Speaker? <laughs> well, he might. Uh, and the response is, "Hey, look, you know, we." Uh, the response from him, anyway, is, "Hey, look, we have to we have to discuss this with them. Uh, what you say you want is uh, is some kind of a spending restraint. Uh, that's what we're going to try to get here. And if we yeah. can get that, great. And if not, then you know we're going to have some hard conversations." Terry Haynes, I know Jay Powell isn't uh, running the Treasury Department, but surely he's concerned about this. He he did not answer the question, probably smart on his behalf. He's got enough to deal with in the parsing of words coming out of the Fed chair. He doesn't want to compete with commentary from Janet Yellen. Uh, but it makes it pretty difficult to set the course here and, and, and get a real accurate forecast on the year ahead uh, when you have the potential for a default. Well, that's very true, you know, and I'm uh – I'm kind of non-consensus uh, that the, the risk here will end, end up being 40 percent hmm. by summer, precisely because I see a, a, a great amount of brink, political brinksmanship going on on both sides. I thought Powell was uh, phrased it uh, in a very puckish way uh, by saying that, you know, he's really the Treasury's fiscal agent here. But, you know, what he did underscore was uh, fundamentally that it would be a very, very bad idea. You know, and there's a lot of ideas, as you well know thrown around on all sides about, well, you know, it really wouldn't be that bad if they defaulted because, well, you know, no, markets won't consider it that way. And <laughs> right. politically, there will be a huge amount of fallout regardless. So, you know, let's put that to uh, let's all put that to bed and, and concentrate on a solution. Hey, Terry, it's been too long. Glad you could come in and talk to us. Terry Haynes, founder of Pangea Policy. Many thanks for the insights. On a pretty wild day here in Washington, D.C., as we assemble the panel, Jeannie Shanzano is here, a Bloomberg politics contributor, of course, Democratic analyst, joined today by Lisa Camuso-Miller, former communications director for the RNC. What did Joe Biden say to him, uh, Jeannie? You know, this this seemed to be kind of a new, optimistic, effervescent Kevin McCarthy feeling right at home out there on the driveway of the White House. Yeah, well, somebody described this as, you know, like a first date. I didn't quite see it that way, but, you know, you could think of that if you have a first date with somebody who's threatening to investigate your son, maybe. But, you know, I I do think that, uh, you know, Kevin McCarthy did, I think, what we expected him to do. Everybody kept trying to tamp down expectations on this. The White House was saying it's going to be boring. You know, no expectations. This nothing will get resolved, as Terry was just talking about, until June. And so I think what Kevin 
McCarthy is trying to say is this was a win for us as Republicans because we want to negotiate, we want to have talks, we want to engage with the other side, and I was in the White House, and so that's the picture he wants to put out there. But the real question is, where is the meat on what they want to negotiate on? Sure. And, of course, we haven't seen any of that. Well, no, and, of course, look, there, there should be a lot of meetings, I guess, if this is the way it's going to go. But to start off on, on the right foot, I guess, is something if he's feeling good when he left. Here's uh, the speaker again. We have different perspectives, but we both laid out some of our vision of where we'd want to get to. And I believe after laying both about, I can see where we can find common ground. I think the American public would appreciate that. Well, of course, Lisa Camuso Miller, though, common ground, respect, words like this coming out of his mouth right after this meeting. It does give the impression that things went well. Maybe he was, I won't say wooed, but, you know, maybe moved a bit by the experience of being in the Oval Office for the first time as speaker. Is he going to be jeered when he goes back into his house? You know, I don't know. I mean, I think nobody benefits more from that meeting going well and these negotiations going well than Kevin McCarthy. Yeah. But the challenge, you're absolutely right. When he goes back to the Capitol, it's going to be interesting <laughs> to see what happens. But that said, he got a meeting. And up until a couple of days ago, the White House was saying they would not negotiate. So this is I think this is a step in the right direction. He's definitely right. I mean, this is what the voters told us on Election Day that they wanted to see. They want to see uh, the, both parties get along. They want to see action. They want to see things get done. Mm-hmm. And getting the debt ceiling right, it benefits all of us. Well, let's talk about the White House's uh, presentation here. Of course, you know, the president did not speak after this meeting. Jeannie, nobody thought he would. But you know what else didn't happen? They didn't allow reporters into the Oval Office. And here I was just assuming this uh, when we talked about it last evening, there'd be a pool spray. That's kind of what you do. You bring them in for one minute. They both say something and then they yell at you and they pull everybody right out the door. And reporters wanted to know what the deal was uh, with that. As we heard Karine Jean-Pierre, the press secretary, asked today in the briefing room. Not all the time. The president has had many conversations, one-on-one conversations with member of Congress. Totally understand. I get the question and understand uh, why there is interest in this. But we have done it many times before where we've had private one-on-one meetings with members of Congress. And not just in this uh, administration. We've seen it under President Trump. We've seen it under uh, President Obama. But look, I'm fascinated by the decision here, Jeannie. They didn't want to give Kevin McCarthy that photo, did they? They did not. They did not want to elevate him. You know, if it was up to them, they probably would have done what they did with Elon Musk, shuttle him over to another building, (laughs) have some senior staff meet him there. But of course, he is number two in line to the presidency. We can't forget that. Their relationship is critical, not just on the debt ceiling, but imagine if there's a crisis in the United States. They are going to have to work together. So they do need to meet in the White House. But, you know, certainly nobody working PR in the White House was going to say, oh, yes, now let this break come in. Let's get some pictures so that Kevin McCarthy can go back and tell everybody (laughs) what he's done. But I think the real question here is how do those never Kevin folks feel about what he is doing at this point? And I don't think we have an answer to that yet. Yeah, well, I mean, I bet we'll find out pretty soon, too. Uh, Was that a good call, Lisa? I mean, I suppose Kevin McCarthy could have been grandstanding there in front of the fireplace with Joe Biden in the Oval Office. Not, Not even a still photo today. I don't know, Joe. I mean, if you're the president, do you want to talk about the fact that the FBI was in your house in Delaware? I mean, because that's the other thing is that if you're in PR and you're paying attention to protecting those conversations, you probably want to keep those two things very separate. So if I'm Kevin McCarthy, I'm probably happy not to be standing next to the president while he's answering questions about documents that are in his basement. Okay, good call. Well, you brought it up, uh, Lisa. We apparently they found nothing. This is they went back through the personal 
uh, residents there, the special counsel came up with nothing. Was that the, the, the right move here to keep inviting everyone in? Well, yeah, because the criticism has been is that they haven't been openly and transparent. So absolutely let people know what's going on. But, you know, like any other press conference, we might first talk about the debt ceiling, but sooner or later we're going to get back to the documents and we're going to get back to other things that are mischief for the White House. The White House is trying to get themselves back on track and they're trying to talk about the issues that they know that they they will win and they will be successful on in their point of view. If you're Kevin McCarthy, I think that this is exactly the way to go. We had a good first conversation. Do I think that it'll probably devolve into a fight? Uh, Absolutely. So, yeah, the headline on the terminal, by the way, no classified documents found in FBI search. Biden Beach home. This is Rehoboth Beach. Jeannie, you saw this. Uh, They went inside. They did not find classified documents, but they did take uh, for further review materials and some handwritten notes, I guess, from his time as vice president. They were in the House at 830 this morning. Does Joe Biden need to have a news conference on this or do you just keep saying nothing? You know, I think his surrogates do need to be out there. I think he needs to take a page from Bill Clinton and Monica Lewinsky's scandal time and keep moving forward with the business of the people. But what is mind-numbing to me is the drip, drip of this. I mean, we're sitting today getting breaking news alerts from Bloomberg and elsewhere saying the FBI raided the house. house. They're back in the house. And you're thinking, (laughs) again, didn't they do this? So the White House PR team, not Biden, has got to wrap their hands around this. They have got to be forthcoming with reporters and the American public on this. The search was planned and consensual, I read, on the terminal conducted without a warrant. That's the part the White House will remind you of. Jeannie Shanzano and Lisa Camuso-Miller, our panel today with more ahead as the Republican House tries to flex on the Democrats today. We'll have more on the fastest hour in politics. This is Bloomberg. You know, it can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. Invisible struggles like stress and burnout, caregiving for a loved one, or being misunderstood. But insight, awareness, and empathy will help us better see the issues they're dealing with. And that can make us and our companies healthier, too. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. Success is more than the final destination. It's a path you take one step at a time. It's discipline. It's teamwork. And it's the drive and passion inside of us that comes before all recognition. It's what Stiefel's been doing for over 130 years. Quietly, yet strategically, Stiefel's become one of the fastest growing wealth management and investment banking firms in the country. Our financial advisors go beyond traditional wealth management to provide clients with direct access to one of the industry's largest equity research franchises and a leading middle market investment bank because success is the drive it takes to keep climbing, the passion to keep investing, the best of each of us made better by the best in all of us. And that is where success meets success. Start your journey at Stiefel.com. That's S-T-I-F-E-L.com. Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE. You're listening to Bloomberg Sound On with Joe Matthew on Bloomberg Radio. The fastest hour in politics live from the nation's capital. We welcome you and thanks for joining us. As the House Oversight Committee holds its first hearing in the new Congress, there's been a lot of anticipation for this. And specifically today about money spent during the pandemic, the trillions of dollars approved in the CARES Act, which was signed by President Trump. Government agencies, though, have said that billions of dollars 
have either been misplaced, misallocated, defrauded from people who needed it, just lost. Oversight Committee Chair Jim Comer says Democrats in the last congressional majority did not oversee the payments. These programs brought relief to many Americans. But with massive government spending comes opportunity for waste, fraud, and abuse. Unfortunately, Democrats conducted little oversight of the over $2 trillion spent under the CARES Act. Not just massive waste, fraud, and abuse. He says the greatest fraud and abuse ever. We owe it to the American people to get to the bottom of the greatest theft of American taxpayer dollars in history. This, of course, being just the beginning of a series of hearings looking into the policies of the last administration, well, this administration, let's just say the last majority in Congress. While on the floor of the House today, Republicans introduced a resolution to condemn what they call the horrors of socialism in this legislation. Here's Congresswoman Maria Salazar of Florida. And why am I bringing this resolution to the floor of the United States House of Representatives? Because young people in America are being brainwashed by the news media and academia into believing that socialism is an economic model for the greater good of all Americans. And the problem is that they are falling for it. They are believing it. Enter Jim McGovern, the Democrat from Massachusetts, uh, who was chair of the Rules Committee until Republicans just took the House, uh, mystified on the floor. I mean, I have to say this is about the stupidest bill I've ever seen. Just a stupid, stupid, stupid bill. And let me just say to my Democratic colleagues, vote however you want on this. Doesn't matter because it does nothing at all. A lot more where that came from. And by the way, this isn't just a stupid bill. It's a badly written stupid bill. (laughs) Now, there's a lot here. Uh, The bill also calls out socialist tyrants, as noted by Congressman McGovern. Oh, it, it denounces Pol Pot. Of course we denounce Pol Pot. Pol Pot. I've never heard anyone say anything nice about him. We denounced Stalin. Didn't know that that needed a resolution. We denounced Kim Jong-un. Well, not all of us, actually. Because, in fact, I remember, if I remember correctly, it was the leader of the Republican Party, Donald Trump, who said he <laughs> fell in love with right. him. He couldn't resist it. That drew a strong reaction from Republicans who were on the floor. By the way, this was not a crowded floor at the time. But let's fast forward to what this actually really means here. By the way, Vladimir Putin's name was not on the list. That took up a whole other. But Democrats are concerned that formally condemning socialism legislatively could somehow jeopardize social programs. And the former chair of the Rules Committee got there. It lays out all of these awful people and then says we're, quote, rejecting the implementation of socialist policies in the United States of America. And nobody, not a single person so far, has been willing to clarify for me what exactly that means. What the hell are they talking about? Are we talking about public schools here? Fire departments? Roads? What about Medicare and Social Security? Republicans have called Medicare and Social Security socialist programs for years. This is actually a fascinating conversation for the panel. Jeannie Shanzano is here along again with Lisa Camuso-Miller. First of all, Lisa, what the heck is going on in the U.S. House? Well, it's the circus that we knew was coming to town, unfortunately. I mean, Joe, this is, it's just weird. 
I mean, I don't even have words. I don't really don't have words to bring any kind of credibility. A to lot this. of messaging, though, going on, right? For a, for a new majority that was promising a lot of legislating, it, 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 none of this stuff is going to lead to to new policy. No, it's it's a show. I mean, really, it's a show. And you know, look, the former chair of the rules committee has a point. But as I look at this from someone who has run campaigns for Republican candidates, I mean, our seniors, our voters, the people that we count on every day, they Mm -hmm. count on those programs, right? I mean, they count on that support. So if this is a step in the direction of taking a shot at social programs, the Republicans will quickly find themselves back in the minority. Well, Kevin McCarthy said Social Security and Medicare are off the table. A genie is is. Jim McGovern just projecting here, or is this a legitimate concern for Democrats? Hallelujah for Jim McGovern, because he asked the right question. What are you talking about? What social programs? It's not that different from what the Biden administration has been asking Kevin McCarthy. What do you want to cut in spending? Hmm. You don't now want to cut Social Security and Medicaid, or so you say. Well, do you want to cut defense? I mean, they have to say they want to cut something or they need to stop making these arguments. But this is really the height of silly season. Is a debate on denouncing socialism really going to do anything to help the American public at all? No, it is not. We had that. We had a fight over in in one of the committees today over whether, in fact, they should say the Pledge of Allegiance, and if so, how? And you had a, a Republican from New Jersey turn around and say, can this be real? I can't believe what's going on here. I mean, this is what is happening in the House of Representatives today. And you wonder why people are so frustrated when they look at Congress. They're playing right into the hands of Biden if he chooses to run, because all he wants to do is point to the Republicans controlling the House and say, this is nuts. You can't turn over the whole government to these folks. Well, Maria Salazar, who you heard introducing the horrors of of socialism resolution, went on to cite extensive polling data uh, Lisa, to prove that Gen Z was being wooed by uh, by the Democrat left uh, to believe in and embrace socialism as much or more than the U.S. Constitution. Is there something to be said for that, or, or is that narrative flawed to begin with? I mean, maybe she's reading the tea leaves. It, it was it was a very good it was a very good day on election day for Gen Z. They came out, they voted, they they've mm. been active. They are they're reported to be one of the most active young groups of voters that we've seen. I mean, Jeannie would know this better than I would, but I know I've read it and I know that I believe it because I know young people are paying attention and they're paying attention because the hyperbole, the, the hyperbolic situation that we are in in this world where people are talking and they're uh, hysterical about issues like this. Young people are saying enough is enough. Let's get back to work. And that's, I think, a good thing. So if that's what this is, if this is a gut reaction to to what they saw on Election Day, I don't necessarily think it's going to change anybody's mind or drive them to the polls in any other way, but to take them out and to do something better. You stand in front of students every day, Jeannie. You're looking at a bunch of socialists out there. What's the what's the story? (laughs) No, you know, I'm looking at a bunch of young people who want their government to work. And so I would tell Salazar or anybody making this case, if you want to attract young people, show them that the government in Washington and elsewhere is doing the business of the people. They want jobs. They want to raise families. They want to get homes. They want to do the things most people want to do. And they want an economic model and a government that works to make that happen. So that's how you attract them. They're not a bunch of socialists. They're people who want to move forward. And let's not forget, this is 
is all coming just days after President Trump goes out and says he still believes Putin more than the U.S. intel community. <laughs> so they need to deal with that problem well, as well. Well, he wasn't listed in that legislation. In that was For quite good noteworthy. reason. <laughs> Indeed. Uh, Jim McGovern made note of that as well. One name I noticed was missing from this list, Vladimir Putin. There it is. Like, what's up with that? <laughs> I mean, we condemn Lenin and Stalin, but not Putin? Is that like a Trump thing? Did, did, he put a, did he put in a call? Seriously, why is Putin left out? He just went on, you know, for half the afternoon. Uh, by the way, piece of news from the White House uh, for both of you, Lisa and Jeannie, for our listeners as well. We talked a lot yesterday about this White House plan to lift COVID emergency restrictions, and that would mean, of course, lifting Title 42. Everyone, the second they heard that headline, looked to the border. The White House is a little ahead of itself on this. Because everyone kept asking the question, just like right here on Sound On at this time yesterday. Well, what about this? It's tied up in the courts, though. What if, what if the courts don't think that, was that going to work? Here's Corinne Jean-Pierre in the briefing room 24 hours later. Look, I just want to be very clear on this part, too, because I know this question has come up, and I do want to do a little bit of a step back here. Mm-hmm. The CDC said in April that the Title 42 uh, should lift, but the courts have, as you all know, uh, required us to keep it in place. And so that's kind of where we are. Uh, so we do not know when or what uh, the courts will rule, uh, but we, we must comply with that order. Okay. So the COVID emergency lifting Title 42, grounded in the COVID emergency, will stay. We've got a lot more to follow as one more candidate enters the race for the Republican nomination. We're going to talk in a little bit with Bloomberg's Josh Green. You're listening to Bloomberg Sound On with Joe Matthew on Bloomberg Radio. And there was another Bloomberg reports that Nikki Haley, the former governor of South Carolina, Donald Trump's ambassador to the U.N., will declare her candidacy for president. The Republican nomination on February 15th, right? Circle it on the calendar. That would make her the first Republican to officially challenge her old boss. Not that anyone's really surprised. Listen to Nikki Haley on Fox News earlier this month. This is 10 days ago when she was asked whether she'd run. Can I be that leader? Yes, I think I can be that leader. I was <laughs> as governor. I took on a hurting state with double-digit unemployment, and we made it the beast of the Southeast. As ambassador, um, you know, I took on the world when they tried to disrespect us, and I think I showed what I'm capable of at the United Nations. So do I think I could be that leader? Yes, but we are still working through things, and we'll figure it out. I've never lost a race. I said that then. I still say that now. I'm not going to lose now. Not going to lose now. Right. So there's your elevator pitch. She will make her announcement in Charleston, South Carolina, right where Donald Trump was last weekend. So let's get into it with Bloomberg Businessweek national correspondent Josh Green, who's been, of course, following the landscape here as we gear up for 24. Josh, welcome back to Sound On. Good to be with you. So the headline today could be Donald Trump fails to clear the field. But is Nikki Haley an actual threat to Donald Trump? Well, it's a good question. I mean, she's certainly somebody now who's going to get quite a bit of attention because she's the first non-Donald Trump candidate to enter the race, or we expect she will be. That was that was sort of the basis of today's announcement. Mm-hmm. Uh, but whether or not she's somebody who can seriously compete with Trump uh, and Ron DeSantis for a Republican nomination, I think very much remains to be seen. There was a poll out on Republican uh, presidential primary contenders last week from Morning Consult 
I had a Trump leading at 48%, and Nikki Haley was at a mere 3%. So uh, really the only good news in that poll was that she was uh, above the other South Carolina candidate who might be entering the race at some point. That's Senator Tim Scott. He was at 1%. So long way to go uh, for anybody to, to sort of be competing with Trump at this point. But of course, we're still a year away. In South Carolina itself, we saw numbers from the Trafalgar group, Trump at 43, DeSantis 28, Scott 14, Haley 12. That's in South Carolina. And Donald Trump was talking about this on his big weekend out. Uh, this was the stop in New Hampshire, talking about Nikki Haley, Ron DeSantis, the rest of the field. Listen, Josh. Remember, I used to t- in 2016, I talked about polls all the time. In 2020, I didn't have to because we didn't have a lot of competition. We had no competition. And I don't think we have competition this time either, to be honest. Huh. But I talked about the polls. And I will say that our polls, we are absolutely, we are so far ahead in the polls uh, both in New Hampshire, one came out this morning, a very nice poll, we're way ahead, and one uh, came out yesterday, on a nationwide poll, and we're 35 points up, 39 points up. That's a lot. How does Nikki Haley break into that number? She's got a name recognition issue. Josh, she hasn't run for any elected office in some time. Well, what she's got to do is go out and campaign and introduce herself to Republican voters, reintroduce herself to the national political media, and make a compelling case that she can draw enough support to be thought of as a plausible contender uh, for the uh, 2024 Republican nomination. Now, I think it's worth mentioning, too, that there are two jobs open uh, on the national ticket for Republicans in 2024. And uh, Haley is rare among the Republican contenders in that she has never gotten crosswise with Trump Mm -hmm. and was one of the few high-level Trump officials to leave his administration on good terms was even praised by Trump. So there's some thinking in the party among strategists that, look, she's running to get her name out there and to get a lot of attention. And if there's one thing we do know about Donald Trump in 24, if he does happen to be the Republican nominee, uh, Mike Pence is not going to be his vice president. That job will be open. So that, <laughs> yes, that could be some, some, some thinking uh, behind Nikki Haley getting in and getting in early as well. She might have to fight Kerry Lake for the job, though, right? She might. Does Nikki Haley want to get into this, though, to be running with Donald Trump? She seems to be trying to make already make that difference to suggest that it's time for new leadership. And in being one of the first to step out, I'm assuming he's not too happy with her at the moment. I think part of that is going to depend on how she goes about campaigning, whether she goes after him directly and says he's a three time loser. Republicans have lost three elections in a row with him at the head of the party. Mm -hmm. Uh, Time for new leadership or whether she goes out and essentially just talks about herself, touts her own uh, bona fides, touts her time in the Trump administration, and runs in a way that doesn't directly uh, challenge Trump. I think that's what a lot of people are going to be looking for. But look, if you get into a Republican presidential primary, any strategist will tell you this. Uh, you have to appear to voters as though you're running for the top job. Right. Um, there's no such thing as getting in and saying, hey, I'm in the field because I want to be somebody's vice president. So uh, Haley, if she's going to break above her 3% or whatever it is in recent polls, is going to have to start convincing people uh, that she's someone they could envision in the White House. And the good news is for her is that besides Donald Trump, she's got the field to herself for now. Nobody else is in there. Uh, And so she could go out and launch this campaign and make her best case. Well, that's actually my next question. Now that someone's actually gone there and done that, does that open the field now? Are we going to start seeing more Republicans at least float some balloons, if not actually announce for president? I think it probably does. I mean, there was a big pause in the field after the 2022 midterm elections when Republicans polled very poorly. 
Uh, Trump had already committed to getting into the race and did. Um, but because he generated so little enthusiasm, mm-hmm. I think it took the pressure off a lot of other Republican candidates, people like Ron DeSantis, who were expected to get in the race. There was some talk about, well, would DeSantis get in in December or January? And I think Trump's poor showing uh, has made his team feel like they can wait until later in the spring or the summer. I think a lot of other uh, candidates are going to feel the same way. The question now is, though, uh, you know, if Haley starts getting attention, do some of these lesser-known candidates with their eyes in the White House, someone like uh, Christy Noem or, or uh, you know, Tim Scott from South Carolina, uh, or even someone uh, running to kind of challenge Trump in the public dialogue, like a Liz Cheney, you know, does she get into the race and try and claim that kind of uh, attention that comes with a small field in hopes that uh, they can catch fire and take off, we'll have to see how that shakes out. And I think a lot of it's going to have to do with the reaction to Haley and whether she really kind of breaks through uh, in, in the media cycle and is somebody that voters get excited about and want to talk about. Does this turn into a free-for-all where we've got, you know, 15 candidates on stage in these primary debates, or, or is the field just not that deep right now with Donald Trump kicking around? I think because of Trump's poor showing after the midterms, the fact that a lot of people in the party blamed him for Republican losses, yeah. uh, makes it likely that the field is going to be larger rather than smaller. Uh, if Republicans had coasted, if Trump was at 80, 90 percent in these uh, Republican presidential primary polls, then I think it would be difficult to see to see a big field. But Trump is viewed by a lot of people in the party as potentially beatable. And I think that's going to induce more and more people to get in the race. Bloomberg Opinion columnist Joshua Green to think we're just getting started. Josh, thanks for your time once again on Bloomberg. Always a pleasure. The fastest hour in politics live from Washington. I'm Joe Matthew, and this is Bloomberg Sound On. By the way, an Emerson College poll, this is conducted January 19th through 21, showed Donald Trump as the presumptive frontrunner in a potential 24 field at 55%. His next closest challenger, and again, this is a, a national view here, 29% Florida Governor Ron DeSantis, widely considered to be Trump's strongest challenger. And he's at it again today with the gas stoves. We'll bring you to Florida next for more on that and our panel, Lisa and Jeannie, only here on Sound On. I'm Joe Matthew. This is Bloomberg. You know, it can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. Invisible struggles like stress and burnout, caregiving for a loved one, or being misunderstood. But insight, awareness, and empathy will help us better see the issues they're dealing with. And that can make us and our companies healthier, too. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, I'm Ron Krzyzewski, Chairman and CEO of Stiefel. Financial Advisors, if you're not growing your practice, you're losing market share. Stiefel is a growing, entrepreneurial, advisor-centric firm built for successful advisors like you. Imagine having the resources of the largest wirehouses and the support of the boutique shops, but none of the bureaucracy to get in the way of you serving your clients. At Stiefel, it's your business, your book, your clients. I always tell the advisors we're recruiting, I want you to come to Stiefel and double or triple your business. Most of them laugh and shake their heads, but I'm serious. Don't take it from me. Take it from Stiefel's number one finish in J.D. Power's 2023 U.S. Financial Advisor Satisfaction Study. 
So there's a reason why 148 financial advisors joined Stiefel last year. Come join us and find out why Stiefel is the firm where success meets success. Visit www.choosestifel.com. Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE. You're listening to Bloomberg Sound On with Joe Matthew on Bloomberg Radio. Bloomberg Sound On is brought to you by Innovation Refunds. It's your daily reminder from Innovation Refunds. In about eight minutes, you can find out if your business qualifies for employment retention credit assistance. Innovation Refunds has helped thousands of small to medium-sized businesses claim the ERC and may be able to help yours, too. Time is running out to claim the ERC. So get started today. Learn more at GetRefunds.com. Not just when you thought the gas stove wars were over. Look no further than the state of Florida, where Governor Ron DeSantis will not go gentle into that good night. Not with the smell of victory at hand. Or in the kitchen. Yes, the smell of natural gas. We just added, because I think it needs to be done, uh, no tax permanently on gas stoves. They want your gas stove, and we're not going to let that happen. And we're not even a state. The way Florida was built, a lot of this wasn't even connected to gas lines. You've got a lot of electric stuff. But it's just the principle of, you know, this is ridiculous that they, and they do want to go after it. They got blowback, so they kind of had to back off. They want to go after the gas stoves, and so we're saying, you know, we want you to be able to buy those uh, uh, free of charge from, from the state of Florida uh, for Another taxes. reason to be in Florida. This, uh, as he rolled out the, uh, the budget, with proposed tax breaks uh, for those who want to buy uh, a gas stove, it's a permanent exemption on appliances fueled by combustible gas, propane, butane, liquefied petroleum gas tax-free. But two things to know here. Number one, uh, it turns out Florida has the, you know, he just mentioned that they're really wired for this, the lowest rate of gas stove use in the country. It is tied with Maine at just 8% of all stoves, according to the Energy Information Administration. I'm from New England. I can tell you they're all wood stoves up there. Uh, The second important point, the Consumer Product Safety Commission, which started all of this when Somebody mentioned the possibility of a gas stove ban, walked back the comments, so the story's actually over. But as he says, they're coming for the stove. And in this echo chamber, does it matter? I'm sure our panel has some closing thoughts. Jeannie Shanzano and Lisa Camusa Miller are with us right now. Jeannie, it's, it's sort of the endless message. We talked earlier about this resolution on the horrors of socialism this now a tax break on gas stoves that no one is apparently buying, but it doesn't matter if it's making good headlines, right? Yeah, that's right. Even the, as you mentioned, you know, 92% of Florida households, electric or induction, doesn't matter. He's putting it in the budget. I have to say personally, I have a gas stove. I wish that Governor Hochul was listening. We could get that up here in New York. You know, it is a lot of these blue states, the East Coast, the Upper West Coast. We have a lot of these. So we need that up here. I'm all for it personally. But it is something, <laughs> uh, you know, a bit ridiculous when you think about it and very little impact. But there it is. He's messaging and apparently doesn't want to address what Donald Trump has been trying to take him on. But I bet you Donald Trump jumps on this soon as well. That's true. Well, you know, it helps to cook the steak well done when you have a gas stove. Uh, Lisa, uh, it look, it doesn't matter, right? When it's when it's a postable 
announcement like that, you put it on Facebook, you raise money on it, doesn't matter if they're coming for you or if anybody has a gas stove, right? Well, yeah. I mean, maybe his budget wasn't very interesting and he decided he needed a little something to sprinkle on there to keep sure. it interesting. But but more than that, I think that this just shows that, I mean, he's not serious. This this whole, the, the policies that he's taking on right now, it's not serious. He's trying to be a celebrity and he's not necessarily trying to be governing. And that I think is going to come through if he is going to run for president. I really think that he's probably, as much as he might be the front runner, there still are some other more serious candidates. Yeah. Nikki Haley, Larry Hogan, Asa Hutchinson, they're coming from the governor's offices and and if we're going to talk about policy and we're going to talk about accomplishments, it's not coming for your gas stove. That is for sure. You're cooking with gas, Lisa? Cooking at home with gas stove? I'm an, I'm an induction girl. So. Induction? Oh, you're so far ahead. Jeannie, you've got a I gas am. stove, right? I do. Lisa's going to give okay. me some lessons soon. Yeah. Okay, good. Yeah. <laughs> Sharpen those knives. Light it up. Have a great dinner. I'll meet you back here tomorrow on the Fastest Hour in Politics. This is Bloomberg. I'm Alex Rodriguez. And I'm Jason Kelly. From Bloomberg, this is The Deal. Each week, you will hear us in conversation with business icons. This show will explore deal-making across sports, media, and entertainment. That is a harsh lesson in business. Sports is and not uh, as simple you know, I, as bringing a bunch of big names together. I didn't want to do another stomp you out speech. It opened so, up so many more doors. The show is called The, the deal. deal. Listen to The Deal wherever you get your podcast, And watch on Bloomberg Originals, Bloomberg Television, or BTV+. Plus.